Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and today I am continuing my book review of Honeybee Democracy by Thomas Seeley, and this episode will cover chapter four. Before I get into that, I will do some quick homestead updates. And this first one is a little unusual, but it popped up in my news feed and I thought it was worth sharing. And it is about brood X cicadas. So a lot of my American listeners are familiar with cicadas. They are the very noisy bugs that uh, hang around in your trees and buzz at you all through the summer. And what you may not know about some cicada species is that they basically go dormant underground for years at a time before all emerging at once. And brood X, brood 10, has been underground for 17 years. That's part of their natural cycle. And they will be emerging this spring, spring 2021, in 15 states, of which Ohio is one of those. Now, these cicadas are sometimes called locusts which is incorrect (laughs) I'm not entirely sure where they got the name I'm assuming because of the fact that it's like a swarm or a plague so it's like a biblical reference locusts however are a different species and brood x consists of three different species of cicada so it's the magicicada septendicum magicicada cassini and magicicada septendecula Now, seeing that Ohio is on the list of these 15 states that this brood has been reported in, I immediately closed out of the news article and went looking to find out whether I am in the danger zone. And I'm very pleased to report that I am not, or at least unless something changes, we are not supposed to be. So there is a handy dandy guide online. Um, I will link it in the show notes and it will also be on my website that lists the states where this brood emerges, the county within the state, and in some cases, very specific locations. So of the Ohio counties where this brood is expected to emerge, This will be the counties of Defiance, Franklin, Green, Hamilton, Logan and Montgomery. And thankfully, I don't live in any of those. Ha ha. So check the show notes. See if you are one of the uh, quote unquote lucky ones that might get to witness this. Apparently these bugs will emerge between May and June when the temperature is above 64 degrees and usually after a period of consistent warm rain. So brace yourselves, Brood X is a coming. For actual like my homestead news, I want to first do an update on Europa, my pink tongue skink who sadly had the broken jaw. I am very pleased to report that exactly three weeks after the initial surgery, the pin in her jaw came out. Now, this is a little earlier than usual. It's recommended that the pin stays in for four to six weeks, depending on how the healing process is going. But the vet felt that the pin was a big part of why the jaw was actually bowing and not returning to its normal shape. And so he decided that if we remove it a little earlier, when enough healing has happened to keep the jaw together, but not so much that it's the bone is really forming around the pin, 
that hopefully it will go back into a more natural position as the remodeling process continues. And I have to say, just having the pin out, her jaw already looks so much better. Um, I'm really, really pleased with her progress. I'm actually going to post on Instagram and on my blog post a side-by-side comparison of what her jaw looked like just a couple of days after the surgery and what it looked like when we took the pin out. Now, since the pin came out, that was last Wednesday, I'm recording on a Sunday, um, there is a little bit of swelling there, um, but it is so much better than it was before. And actually, right before we had the pin out, I just felt like she turned a corner. She was coming out to bask on her own in the mornings. She was eating food without needing to be uh, syringe fed and she just seemed brighter and more like herself. So I'm really hopeful that now that pin is out, a number of the stitches are out, she's gonna continue to feel better, she's gonna continue to heal. And with the way things are going, touch wood, fingers crossed, I'm actually optimistic that she's not going to be deformed like I had worried about. So yay Europa, please keep sending all your good thoughts to her. Um, I'm super, thankful for how things have gone with her and I just hope it continues and everything returns to normal. In rooster news, Pepper Jack doesn't charge me as much anymore. So it used to be kind of an everyday I'd open up the run and he'd like chest bump me or peck my boots or something. Um, But I have also noticed that there are things that will trigger his defensive behavior. So for instance, if one of the hens runs to me, he gets very defensive, which makes sense. Also, if I have my back to him and I walk quickly away, he will like it stimulates him to chase me and then once he starts chasing me he like has to peck me or kick me or something so sometimes I walk backwards so that he can't uh, get me or if I walk quickly away and I hear him coming up behind me I will like turn around really fast and then he's like oh I wasn't doing anything what what do you want so overall I'm very pleased with it sometimes he'll uh, peck my boot a little bit or my knee but it's very sort of like almost as if he just feels to he has to do it there's no real heat behind it and actually this morning was fun because it is that what's well, snowing here which is not fun but what that meant is that basically the chickens were all in the coop they didn't want to come out into the run and so I was throwing some treats in there and he was right underneath the door of the coop and I saw my chance I just swooped and I picked him up and this is the first time I've ever held him because he's so skittish now obviously he didn't like it but he actually settled down quite fast and I just sort of walked around with him for a bit I petted him I made soothing noises I like rested my face against his you know and he actually was pretty chill um He seemed to adjust very quickly once he was actually picked up. I will say, however, that he does appear to weigh about the the amount of a small dog. So I don't think picking him up will be a regular occurrence, not just because he won't let me, but because my arms will get tired. I mean, he's heavy. But yeah, that was great. Um, I've also found out, weirdly enough, that um, I can pet his butt. (laughs) And by that, I mean like... So I was working on hand feeding him and while he's eating out of one hand, gently reaching the other hand under his chest and like stroking his chest. Well, he doesn't really like that. And obviously he doesn't like it if you reach from above to pet like his back or his head. I mean, that's that's threatening. You know, a lot of birds don't like to be approached from the top. It's the same with reptiles. So I thought the chest thing was the way to to win him over but no 
And then I sort of saw him and he had his tushy up in the air eating something off the ground and he has the fluffiest butt. And I just reached into all that fluff and started scritching his little thighs and he didn't respond at all. So very oddly, he's not defensive of his sort of tushy area. So if I want to get my little rooster fixed, I can just put something on the ground for him and then just gently touch his fluff. And sometimes I run my hand under his tummy, just try and get him used to me. And it works a lot better. So I do think we're making progress and I just, I adore him. So I will pet his little fluffy butt as much as I can. Speaking of chickens, last time I spoke about how I was worried that Squeak, my rescue girl with the with no beak uh possibly had vent glee well you know I'm really not sure about that anymore um I haven't noticed any more discharge her vent is a healthy pink color there's no evidence of diarrhea in the coop or in the run I'm still giving her and uh, Agatha yogurt every now and then mixed with some oats but um just sort of every few days now a couple of times a week not every other day I have been especially careful to keep their water absolutely sparkling clean. You know, obviously I always keep their water as clean as possible, but I'm really, if I see that they've like kicked dirt in it or sometimes uh, they drop food in there, you know, I emptied the whole thing, rinse it out, put fresh water in. I'm only using water with probiotics right now. And I'm hoping that is making a difference. As for the lice on her, the diatomaceous earth is helping, but it hasn't fully resolved the issue. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to use the front line that I previously used on Agatha. So next time I front line my dogs, I will keep just a couple of drops back and I will use those on Squeak. Now, I was all muddled. So I got the main ingredient in front line mixed up one time and I had to do a correction And then I got more confused because I found in my chicken health handbook that Frontline was said to work on like ticks and fleas, but not on lice. Um, So I did a little bit more digging. And I think where I got confused is that Frontline can work on poultry lice. The reason it's not recommended for chickens is that if you use Frontline, you can no longer eat the eggs that come from those chickens. There's no sort of known or deemed self egg withdrawal time. So that's probably why I used it on Agatha and not Squeak uh, before, because that actually does sound familiar. So I think I did come across this and I just kind of got muddled and I forgot or whatever. But so yeah, I used it on Agatha because Agatha doesn't really lay eggs anymore. And when she does, they're all like tiny fairy eggs that aren't good for eating they usually don't have a yolk and sometimes there's a lot of like blood and stuff in them Um, and then squeak I think it's worth making the change because yes squeak has actually been one of my best egg layers in the sense that that little thing usually produces an egg a day no matter what she's completely stopped laying though for winter and her eggs have been increasingly funky so they've always been a bit of an odd shape or they've often had odd shells or sometimes they have no shells or they have like a rubbery shell or occasionally Well, actually, I say about half the time the shell is so thin that I can't even get it into the house before it breaks. So I honestly think that in order just to nip this lice issue in the bud, I'm going to give the front line and I'm just going to throw away her eggs from here on out. You know, I have other laying birds. Um, 
I'm also open to the possibility of getting pullets at some point to increase how many egg layers I have because I have a lot of old old women old hens now so they don't lay as much um, and and I it just be better because a lot of the other really really effective poultry lice treatments are just sort of the kind of insecticides that are also dangerous for bees and I just don't want to have that on the property for obvious reasons so I'm going to frontline her and just all of her eggs if she starts laying again will be disposed of and speaking of eggs and like funky shells or like shell quality, um, I actually wanted to talk about the company Grublies. So I've mentioned them before. I really like Grublies. They sell dried soldier fly larva, which look very similar to mealworms, but are higher in protein and calcium. And I mentioned them previously on the podcast because I had switched to them specifically because it's a US-based company and they make everything. They they raise the insects, they process them all here in the US. And that was important to me because A, I want to support like smaller or American businesses, but B, I wanted to reduce my carbon footprint, footprint, excuse me, by having a company here as opposed to one overseas, which, you know, everything's flown in and blah, blah, blah. But also because a lot of the dried mealworms that are sold for our birds, whether it's the birds at your feeder or the birds in your coop are made in China and there's not a lot of regulations and there have been weird things found sometimes weird chemical additives that are very questionable so I really didn't want to get those anymore so I switched to Grublies and I really like them you can set up a subscription service where you get like 10% off if you have them delivered like every month or every couple of months and it's been great what I noticed that they came out with their own laying chicken feed. And it's more expensive than what you would get at the feed store. So at uh, Tractor Supply, if you go for sort of Purina or a similar brand to that, there's lots of them, you're looking to pay between 16 to $21 for a 30 pound bag. Whereas the Grubly feed is $42.99 for £30. Or if you set up auto deliver, which I have, you save a small amount and it's $38.69. And so I decided to give it a go. And I have to say that there are overall a lot of benefits to this feed. The downside is really just the expense and the fact that that 30 pound bag isn't enough to feed my flock of 11, 10 hens and one rooster. So for those of you with bigger flocks, like you would have to buy multiple bags and then obviously the price is gonna add up and add up. So what I do is I mix it with a more inexpensive feed and I find that it's readily accepted. So the good thing about this is that it it is a really high quality feed. Like I'm not gonna go through, you know, the press talking points about about it. You can find that on their website and I will link to the website um, in the show notes and then again on my on my blog. But the girls love it, which obviously is great. But what I'm really impressed about with the Grubbly feed is that I have noticed a quite dramatic change in the quality of the eggshells from my girls. Now, I feed what I think, or I have been feeding what I think is a, a good quality pellet or crumble. 
Um, you know, I, I check the protein levels, I check the calcium, I add calcium in the form of like oyster shell, oyster grit, I add grit. You know, my big flock has recently started uh, free roaming which will also help with nutrition. But before they were free roaming, I had them on this feed. And I started to notice that shells were becoming thicker. They were, you know, tougher. They, um, I wasn't having as many eggs breaking in the nest box or breaking on the way into the house. They didn't sort of just feel like they disintegrate when you try and crack them open. Like it really did make a big difference. So I wanted to mention it here. If any of you have maybe been considering this and have been put off by the price, I still think it's working really well by just mixing it in with a more inexpensive feed to kind of get a bit more bang for your buck. So I do recommend giving it a go if you can. And, um, you know, I just like Rubbly. They send out, you know, sweet cards. Um, they're very, you know, communicative with their uh, buyers. They have a really fun and kind of playful vibe to them. You know, they do a number of contests and stuff, all that kind of good stuff. They just seem like a good company. And like I said, they're based in the US. So you're supporting, you know, American made businesses, which is always good. So I'll post the link to Grubbly if you haven't found them yet. Um, and full disclosure, I am not in any way sponsored or being paid to say this. I'm just sharing my personal experience. Um, but having said that, a number of podcasts are sponsored by Grubbly. So like if you want a discount code, maybe check out like Drink and Farm, some of those big podcasts. They have deals going where you can usually get like an additional 10% off if you use like one of their codes. So maybe go to Drink and Farm website and see what promotion they're offering. Um, in other news, I'm, I'm sort of thinking ahead to what I want to do with the garden this coming year. I know I talked a bit about this in the episode about goals uh, for 2021, um, but I'm just thinking a lot more about how I want to dig deeper into what I already have. So I want to build a bit more on the existing structure that I have going here. I want to make beds better. I want to increase the soil quality. I want to um, really focus on the plants that I have, on supporting them, on getting the best kind of production from them that I can, you know, really building health. There's things I've been putting off like, um, like edging for the flower beds when we have really heavy rain you know some of the mulch gets washed away and edging would really help with that so I need to kind of figure out how much I need get that put in um I've got to redo the path in the backyard because I had to dig it up for our plumbing issue so that needs to be redone and then I wanted to do things like I know I mentioned I'm going to expand the bed for the corn and I really want to dig down deep and figure out like what exactly do I need for the best corn production what exactly do I need to really make that three sisters garden of corn beans and squash flourish because I did not have a lot of success and obviously I know things like I put too many tomatoes too close together so I want to think about if I'm just going to restrict myself to like three or four tomato plants what varieties do I want am I going to go with seeds or starters you know I really am just thinking about all this stuff to try and convince myself that spring isn't that far away okay so hive updates there's not a huge amount to say. I mean, it's we're still in the heart of winter here in Ohio. There's been a fair amount of snow. We've been in the 20s a lot. I mean, the, the girls are just getting on with it as best they can. 
I did pop out with the stethoscope again and all of them seem to be alive as of a week ago, but some also seem weaker than others and I'm still quite worried that Queen Marker might not make it this year. Um, I have been thinking again about what I want to achieve with my bees this year. You know, I want to simplify some things. It, it's kind of like with the garden. I want to dig a, dig deeper into what I have, figure out best practices, what works best for my colonies, what genes I want to propagate. I want to work more with my mentees. I want to spend more time in the hive, really learning everything my bees have to teach me. I want to try new mite treatments, track the results, set up swarm traps, all that kind of stuff. Uh, My last bit for hive updates is a book recommendation. And if you follow me on Instagram, you would have seen this already, but I have absolutely been loving the book Queen Spotting by Hilary Kearney. It is absolutely incredible. Um, I received it as a Christmas gift. And based on the name, I thought that most of what it was going to be were beautiful photographs. Um, They're double pages. So they're about the size of a honeybee frame in a Langstroth hive, like a Langstroth frame of um, bees and then the idea obviously is that you spot the queen and at the beginning of the book it's easier to spot her and then as you progress through the book it gets more and more difficult and there is a lot of that obviously but it's there's also a really great overview of the hive the bees their functions and then all this information on the queen but what I loved the most are all the stories that the author shares so she shares stories about uh, bee removals that she's done experiences with queens um just just all these personal stories about her experience as a beekeeper and she has a really great writing style it's so personable and friendly and it's really clear that she absolutely loves honeybees it just shines from every page and the photography is absolutely phenomenal. I kind of feel like if I had the chance to meet her, we'd really get on because I think we are quite similar in our, uh, dare I say, obsession with honeybees and queens in particular. Um, and so you might know Hilary Kearney from her website, Girl Next Door Honey. Uh, she's been, I think, quite a well-known figure on the social Uh, media sites for a while because of the work that she does Uh, she's based in California she does a number of bee removals she's an educator she manages her own hive she produces honey uh, all these kind of things just incredible what I want to be she's like the beekeeper I want to be when I grow up kind of thing Um, but what I really loved about this book is reading it right now in dreary winter in Ohio is that opening that book felt almost like opening a hive and I almost felt like I was bee bathing so I don't know if you've heard this thing called forest bathing which is where you like go out into the woods or the forest and you just sort of uh, you just sort of be present and absorb the greenery and the light coming through the trees and just sort of bask in nature this book is like bee basking just kind of bask in these beautiful photographs of these golden insects that I love so much so it definitely helped with my mood and I just cannot recommend it highly enough it's going to be one of those books that I'm going to turn to again and again when I want to pick me up when I want a reminder of something when I want to just see beautiful 
honeybee photography. So I can't recommend it highly enough. I'm going to link to her website. You can buy the book at any major bookstore. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Um, you might be able to find it on thrift books. I'm not sure, but also she sells it directly from her website. So I will link to that because her website is definitely worth a look. She runs a blog. She's offering online beekeeping classes due to the pandemic. So even if you're not in California, you could potentially take a class with her. And I just really recommend you check things out. I absolutely love her blog. It's so informative. So yes, Queen Spotting by Hilary Kearney at Girl Next Door Honey. Go check it out. All right, so we are finally on our next chapter, chapter four, called Scout Bees Debate. And I think this has been my favorite chapter so far. I'm not entirely sure why. I think some of the information that we got here just really fascinated me. So chapter four, Scout Bees Debate, opens, as always, with a quote. And this quote is by Jimmy Carter um, from his address to the Parliament of India back in 1978. The experience of democracy is like the experience of life itself, always changing, infinite in its varieties, sometimes turbulent, and all the more valuable for having been tested by adversity. So a honeybee swarm uses something called direct democracy. The individuals of the community participate directly in the decision-making process as opposed to working through one or two representatives. And Seeley likens this process to that of a New England town meeting where registered voters will congregate to discuss issues and then vote on them. The difference between honeybee swarms and town meetings is that the swarm has a common interest and builds a consensus to make a decision, whereas those at a town meeting have conflicting opinions and reach a decision by a majority voting rule. A town meeting is designed so that the participants gain an overview of all issues raised, whereas a scout bee can only observe and interact with the bees closest to her in the cluster. She doesn't have access to the information of all of the bees in the swarm combined. What is similar between swarms and town meetings is that a decision is based on many contributions and observations and all of them are equally weighted. To quote Seeley directly, in other words, the control of the group's actions is distributed among many of its members rather than concentrated in a few leaders. All information is offered from so many participants that knowledge gained is more numerous and offers a greater insight than that contributed by just a few individuals. To reach a decision, both swarms and town meetings use an open competition process for the proposed options. A proposal can be accepted or rejected and an accepted proposal proposal can then gain more popularity until enough community support makes it the top choice. In a swarm, scout bees might all enthusiastically dance for different locations at the same time. Competition can actually be pretty fierce, but it's always friendly. Ultimately, the scout bees all agree on what makes an ideal nest site, and they are united in their goal of choosing the very best one. To quote Seeley, 
One valuable lesson that we can learn from the bees is that holding an open and fair competition of ideas is a smart solution to the problem of making a decision based on a pool of information dispersed across a group of individuals. This section of the chapter is called Lindauer's Swarms. As mentioned in chapter one, Martin Lindauer discovered the democratic process of honeybee swarms in 1951 and 1952, when he was able to study the swarms that came from the bee colonies kept in the garden of the Zoologist Institute at the University of Munich. Lindauer studied 17 swarms across the months of May, June and July. Initially, he sought to determine whether the bees dancing on the swarm were nest site scouts, but he also wanted to discover exactly how a swarm finds and chooses a new home. He started by watching a swarm cluster for hours at a time, and then he would mark with paint those bees that had danced on its surface. Incredibly, Carl von Frisch, who is Martin Lindauer's... um, superior advisor, remember, had created a marking scheme that allows one to label bees from 1 to 599 with just five paint colours. And this is the system that Lindauer used. At first, all seemed to be going well as just a few bees danced at the start of his observation period. So Lindauer was able to make detailed notes for each dance and dancer, such as her colour ID, the time of her dance and the location she advertised. But over time, more than a dozen bees would be dancing enthusiastically across the cluster and it was almost impossible to keep track of each dancer. As a result, Lindauer had to pare down his notations to the time he saw each dancer and the location she advertised. This was time consuming and tiring work, but thankfully it revealed a lot to him. And we learned in chapter one how Lindauer discovered that the site advertised unanimously by the bees was the ultimate destination when the swarm flew off from where they were resting. Seeley then goes on to discuss some of the individual swarms Lindauer studied and what these revealed to him. So we start with the X swarm. This swarm left its parent hive at 1.35pm on June 26, 1951, settled on a bush and then hung there for almost four full days while the scout bees looked for a new home. On the first day, Lindauer noted and labelled two dancers between 1.35 and 3pm. One reported a site approximately 1,500 metres to the north and the other a site 300 metres southeast. By 3pm, rain clouds moved overhead and the temperature began to fall, so the scout bees ceased their investigations for the day and they returned to rest with the cluster. On the second day, Lindauer labelled 11 new dancers between noon and 5pm. Three advertised the northern site of the day before, two advertised the southeast location from the previous day, and six dancers indicated six different sites in various locations. Clearly, no agreement had been reached during the second day. On the third day, the weather was mostly rainy, and Lindauer noted just two new dancers, both arriving late in the morning. One advertised the northern site and the other a new site 400 metres southwest. On the fourth day, the weather was much improved, warm with clear skies, and the scout bees quickly went to work with 20 new sites found and advertised. 
the previously popular site to the north, however, did not gain additional dancers. Between 9.30am and 4pm, 9Bs advertised a site 1500 metres to the west, but interest seemed to wane, and from 4 to 5pm, no new dancers advertised this location. The site located 300 metres southeast held the bees' interest for the full day with new dancers acquired each hour. Between 4 and 5 p.m., the recruitment of scouts for this location overwhelmed all others with 61 new dancers advertising and only two new dancers for alternate locations. By the following morning, support for the southeast site remained the same with 83 of 85 bees advertising for it. At 9.40am on June 30th, the swarm flew 300 metres to the southeast site to take up residence, and the residence turned out to be a cavity in the wall of a bombed building in Munich. Now, this pattern of dancers advertising different locations until over time, new dancers focus on one of the sites almost exclusively, and then ultimately the swarm departs towards that location, was repeated by all of the swarms that Lindauer studied, with just a few exceptions. Occasionally, the process is not quite as smooth or linear as what we just saw with the X swarm. So, for example, sometimes scout bees would find two sites of apparently equal desirability, as each would recruit new dancers at a steady rate, making it hard for the dancing bees to reach an agreement. This occurred with Lindauer's Propelium, I hope I said that right, Propelium swarm in his study. So the Propelian swarm left the parent hive at 2.14pm on June 11th, 1952. That afternoon, scouts reported 11 sites, one of which attracted a large number of dancers. 15 bees danced for a site 900 metres northeast, and only 14 bees danced for the other 10 sites. This made it seem to Lindauer that an agreement had been reached quickly in less than three hours. But on the morning of the second day, a site 1400 metres to the southwest attracted a strong group of dancers. Throughout the day, the number of dancers for the northeast and the southwest sites were nearly identical, so the dance-off raged onwards. On the third day, June 13th, a victor began to emerge, the northeast location. From 12 to 2pm of that day, the northeast, northeast site recruited 25 new dancers versus 9 for the southwest site. Between 2 to 4, the northeast site had 41 dancers versus 7 for southwest. And from 4 to 5, the northeast site had 34 new dancers and the southwest site had no new dancers. By the end of the third day, an agreement had clearly been reached, but it was now too late in the day for the swarm to leave. And the following day was cold and rainy, so not very good flying weather. And so it was not until June 15th, four full days after leaving the parent hive, that the bees flew to the northeast site to take up residence. Seeley adds at this point that... Interestingly, swarms rarely take flight after 5pm and he posits that this might be because the lower light makes it harder to find the queen should she fall behind or stop for a rest, which is relatively common. So going back to Lindauer's swarms, we can see that sometimes the process of agreement can take a few twists and turns. 
Lindauer even encountered a swarm that failed to reach an agreement. This was what he called the balcony swarm. This swarm left its parent hive on June 22nd, 1952, and its scout bees got into a balanced competition with one group dancing for a site 600 metres northwest and one dancing for a site 800 metres southwest. Over four hours from 12 to 4 p.m., neither group took the lead. But amazingly, at 4.10 p.m., the swarm took flight and basically divided itself in the air. Half the bees flew towards the northwest and half flew southwest. But neither group continued to their destination and eventually the groups reunited in the air near where they had originally rested as a cluster. Over the next 30 minutes, Lindauer observed a tug of war between the northwest group, which would fly 100 metres away before returning, and the southwest group flying 150 metres away before then coming back. Eventually, the bees did return to a single cluster on the balcony where they had started. Sadly, further observation made it clear that during all this kerfuffle in the air, the swarm had somehow lost their queen. As a result, over the next few hours, the bees of the swarm slowly began to drift away, a few at a time, back towards the parent hive. The sad fate of this swarm demonstrates that the decision-making process is not infallible. Occasionally, a swarm will come to a split decision such as this, and then further debate is ultimately needed for success. Of the 17 swarms that Lindauer studied, just two produced split decisions, but only the balcony swarm failed to reach an agreement. And this appeared to be due to the loss of their queen. So it seems that total failure to reach a consensus is rare and due to mitigating factors. In this case, the queen being lost and not being recovered. Perhaps the most interesting observation of the balcony swarm is the fact that the swarm flew before a consensus was reached, which indicates that the strong indication of dancer consensus that we can see as outside observers is not what the bees monitor to know when to switch from making a decision to implementing a decision. And at this point, Celie tells us that how bees actually make this switch will be revealed in chapter seven, which is called Initiating the Move to a New Home. This next section is called My Swarms. Seely notes that Martin Lindauer was a true trailblazer in his field and that despite his great abilities and his insights, he was hampered by his time, particularly in the lack of sophisticated equipment. Lindauer worked using little more than a notebook, a watch and paint, and this limited him through no fault of his own to recording only the new dancers that appeared on his swarm. Ideally, he would have recorded new and old dancers at each stage of the decision-making process to give a clearer picture of the dynamics in the dancing for various locations. This would have allowed him to ascertain the total number of dancers for each location, not just the new dancers or the new recruits. Lindauer's work shows that the winning site was the one advertised by the greatest number of new dancers, but it doesn't indicate whether this was the greater number of dancers as a whole. Can we assume that the winning site has won over all the dancers, both the old and the new? Lindauer suggested that this is the case, 
Dancers for less popular sites ultimately stopped trying to recruit others, but he didn't indicate whether this was through ceasing to dance completely or switching to dancing for a more popular site. Seely has many questions about a dancer's role in the process. Is the total amount of dancing related to the quality of the site? If a dancer stops dancing, how does she decide to do so? Does she stop of her own accord or only if other dancers are more vigorous and or more popular? Lindauer's study doesn't answer these questions and so Seely decided to tackle them himself. In 1996, Seeley began this process, almost 20 years after he had finished his PhD thesis research on the nest site preferences of honeybees and how they estimate cavity volume. Was there a reason he waited so long to build on Lindauer's work despite his keen interest? Yes, there was. In the 70s, when he was working on his thesis, he couldn't get access to the kind of recording equipment he anticipated needing. At the time, the video camera, recorder and monitor were all separate pieces of equipment and each of them could cost thousands of dollars. Seeley was keenly aware of the limiting factor of the equipment available, as well as the great expense, and so he focused on more accessible work that was still related to how social animals make collective decisions. Specifically, he looked at how a honeybee colony deploys foragers amongst their many foraging options. To quote him, This is a different sort of collective choice, for whereas a homeless swarm makes a consensus decision about which single option, candidate nest site, it will choose, a foraging colony makes a combined decision about how to allocate its foragers among multiple options. For nearly 15 years, Seeley studied how honeybees work as a united whole to forage and how they wisely distribute themselves among available food sources. In 1995, this work was summarised in his book, The Wisdom of the Hive, and then Seeley moved on to his next focus, the collective decision-making of honeybee swarms. And now he knew where he needed to begin. He would obtain a complete record of the scout bees dances throughout every stage of the swarm's decision making process. Unlike Lindauer 40 years before or himself 20 years ago, Seeley now had access to sophisticated video recording and slow motion playback equipment. Seeley had also learned how to label thousands of bees for individual identification using plastic colour number tags glued to the thorax and paint marks dotted on the abdomen. And this should allow tracking of each individual's dancing from start to finish. Just labelling the bees alone would be exhaustive work. And then there's equipment to maintain and recordings to be very carefully combed through. What's a busy professor to do? He needs to recruit an undergraduate, or as I like to call them, free labour. I am not associated with the university, so I get to say that. Now, to quote Seeley, it was my immense good fortune to be joined in this endeavour by Susanna Berman, an extremely bright and indefatigable undergraduate student at Cornell. And I will say, despite my little joking here from the outside of being a university wife, I suppose, is that a good undergraduate is genuinely worth their weight in gold and they can provide incredible assistance. And it sounds like Seeley was fortunate to find Susanna Berman for this study. So Seeley and Berman worked together throughout the summer of 1997. They studied three swarms and obtained a complete record of all the dances performed for each swarm. 
And he's gonna talk in detail about two here. So we're gonna start with swarm one. Observation for this swarm began at 10 a.m. on June 19th. Scouts reported discoveries between 1 and 3 p.m., with seven sites reported by the end of the day, and there was no clear front runner. On the second day, four additional sites were advertised, and three sites had received the most support. Site G, which was 2,200 metres southeast, Site H, which was 2,600 metres east, and Site I, which was 4,200, sorry, 4,200 metres south. Between 12 and 2 p.m., Site I took the lead with 23 of 25 dancers, and it remained in the lead throughout the afternoon, although two additional sites gained support, Site L and Site M. The, me- the next morning, there was a clear consensus, however. Site I was the winner. At 9.10 a.m. of that morning, the swarm flew south. The debate witnessed at Swarm 1 is similar to what Lindauer saw with his ex-swarm. During the first half of the decision-making process, numerous sites were reported. And then in the second half of the debate, the dancers quickly became focused on just the one site. Now, Seeley's study noted the total number of dancers, not just the newly recruited. And so we can be confident that the Swarm's decision was due to a real consensus among all of the dancing bees. The other swarm that he talks about is Swarm 3. Now, this swarm was notable as there was a strong competition between two groups of dancers. The swarm was set up at 2.30pm on July 19th. And the next day, between 11am and 1pm, six sites were advertised, A through F, with site A, which was 2200 metres east, developing a strong lead of eight dancing bees. Over the next four hours, three more sites, sites G, H and I, were reported and some four sites were leading overall, which were sites A, B, D and G. Site A was starting to lose its initial lead as sites B, which was 900 metres south, and site G, 1400 metres southwest, gained more support. Between 3 and 5 p.m., four bees danced for A, whereas 17 bees danced for B and 10 for G. Over the next two hours, the next two owls, I wish that's how we measured time, but no, over the next two hours, bees danced for seven sites, including two new ones, J and K, though only B and G had the support of multiple bees. And it was at this point that Celia and Berman made a bet as to which site would ultimately be the winner, with the loser treating the winner to a triple scoop of ice cream at the newly opened Ben and Jerry's in Ithaca. Seely chose site B and Berman chose site G. The next day, between 7 and 9am, both sites were advertised by 12 dancing bees. From 9 to 11, there were now 32 dancers for G and 17 for B. Between 11 and 11.45, when it began to rain, G was a strong lead with 20 dancers versus four for B. The rain continued for the rest of that day and through the night, so it wasn't until 9am of the following day that the dance-off continued, and now there was unanimous support for Site G, with 73 of 73 dancers dancing for it. A little before noon, the swarm flew off to the southwest and not long after, Seeley and Berman went to Ben and Jerry's for some well-deserved ice cream with Seeley paying. 
To quote Celie here, It was a great pleasure to watch the dance competition among scout bees, but it was an even deeper pleasure to analyse the diagrams that we prepared many weeks later after we had extracted all the information we needed from our 48 hours of video recordings. And I just wrote here, this is such a biologist thing to say. Yes, it was fun to do the work, but now we get to study the data. So the videos that they took showed that the bees debate tends to start with a slow information accumulation phase where many options are brought to the table to be considered. Of the three swarms observed, the total number of sites considered were 13, 5 and 11 respectively. Sites were in various directions and distances, with scouts searching some 70 square kilometres or 30 square miles. Most sites were introduced during the first stage of debate, but some would be introduced later, such as was seen with sites L and M of Swarm 1. Scout B debate ends with all or nearly all bees dancing for one site, so consensus. And this raises the question, how are bees recruited to dance for one site while others start to fall from favour? And here Celie says that this will be discussed in detail in chapter 6. The decision-making process is democratic in nature, involving dozens or even hundreds of individuals. And this is sort of the important point here. So of the three swarms studied, 73, 47 and 149 bees danced respectively for each swarm. Now these swarms were smaller than those that we would typically see in nature. So they had 3,252 bees, 2,357 and 3,649 bees respectively compared to the six to 14,000 bees that you see of natural swarms. So looking at these numbers, the percentage of dancers in the study group comes to 2.8%, which is close to the 5.4% reported by David Gilley in his study of natural swarms, which more on this in just a second. So if 3 to 5% of bees participate in the dance debate, this works out to be about 300 to 500, 500 bees in a typical swarm of, let's say, 10,000 bees. So next section is called Intrepid Explorers. Let's consider what we know about worker bee lifespans. Worker bees have short lives, three to five weeks during the warm months of the year. And we know as well that swarming occurs in late spring and early summer. So we can surmise that many generations of worker bees come and go before scout bees are needed. So what causes some worker bees to take on this important role of a scout when the need arises? Who are these intrepid explorers? Well, scout bees are foragers who switch from finding food to finding potential nest sites. They go from working in the sunlight to searching out dark cavities. The first evidence that workers switched to scouting came from an experiment by Martin Lindauer in 1954. In May of that year, he set up a colony in an area of Munich that was largely flat, offering few trees or houses that might harbour potential nest sites. The area did have bountiful forage, however, and soon the bees were packing their hive with brood, pollen and honey, and Lindauer predicted they would swarm, which they did on May 27th. 
On May 17th, 10 days before the swarm, Lindauer had set up a sugar feeder on a table some 250 metres or 820 feet from the hive and soon had more than 100 bees visiting the feeder to drink down the rich sugar syrup. He labelled each of the foragers with paint so that he could individually identify them. On May 22nd, he placed two artificial nest sites, a straw skep and a wooden hive, beside the feeding area. Over the next few days, Lindauer noticed that the foraging bees' behaviour was starting to change. They were less interested in the sugar syrup and seemed to eat it more tentatively compared to their previous eagerness. On May 25th, he noticed that his labelled bees might take a sip or two of syrup, but would then fly up and around the area. He realised they were showing interest in the knothole of a nearby oak tree, as well as his two artificial nests. That afternoon, six of his labelled foragers conducted 15 inspections of the skep and eight of the wooden hive. Clearly, some of his foragers were now scouts. Second evidence of this change from forager to scout came from a study by Dave Gilley. Dave Gilley at the time was a gifted undergraduate student who had joined Seeley's lab. He needed a senior thesis topic and he wanted to work with bees, so he asked Seeley for some ideas. Seeley suggested he look into the mystery of which bees become scouts and Gilley happily agreed. Whereas Lindauer had shown that some scouts were previously foragers, Gilly wanted to see if all or most scouts were previously foragers. And because we know that foragers are the oldest bees in a hive, we should see then that scout bees would be older as well. So to test this theory, in early May 1996, Gilly set up five small colonies of bees and he would add 100 freshly emerged or zero-day-old bees to each colony every three days from May 5th to July 22nd. All of the bees from each age group were given a particular paint colour so that they could be tracked within the colony. In June and July, all five colonies swarmed one after the other. Once a swarm had settled in its cluster, Gilly would watch and wait for dancers. Each time he saw one, he would identify her age by her paint dot colour, and then he would mark her again so that she would not be recounted. Once he had 50 or so scouts of known age, he collected the swarm and euthanized it so he could count how many there were from each age group. His results showed that nest site scouts included many more older bees than would be expected if known age scouts had been selected completely at random from a pot of known age foragers. Scouts, therefore, come largely from the colony's experienced foragers. And we can see why experienced foragers would make good scouts. They're used to flying potentially long distances from the hive in search of food and then successfully navigating their way back to bring back their loads of pollen, nectar, water or propolis. So these results show that many foragers however don't become scout bees. We can see that experienced foragers tend to become scouts but then what about all these other foragers? Why do they not become scouts? And Seeley points out here that we do know now that genetics do play a role, with certain genes predisposing a bee to serve as a scout. 
This was demonstrated by two behavioural geneticists, Jean E. Robinson and Robert E. Page Jr., now professors at the University of Illinois and Arizona State University, respectively. They set up three colonies, each with a queen who had been inseminated with semen from three unrelated drones, drone A, B and C. These three drones each carry distinct genetic markers, allowing their offspring to be easily identified by the investigators. Robinson and Page created artificial swarms from their colonies, set them up outside and collected 40 scouts, dancers, and 40 non-scouts, non-dancers, from each. A paternity analysis was then performed on the sampled bees and the results analysed to determine if offspring of certain drones were more likely to become scouts. They found that the offspring of the three drones differed dramatically in the likelihood of becoming scouts, with one drone fathering 60% of all scout bees, even though he fathered just 20% of the total worker bees. Did his genes make his daughters become scouts? Even knowing then that some worker bees have genes that foster exploratory behaviour, how do the bees know when it's the right time to start scouting? Amazingly, a full stomach might be the key. Seely observed when setting up artificial swarms that if the bees were not kept sufficiently well fed, no scout bees appeared. So as a reminder, creating an artificial swarm involves removing the queen from a colony and then shaking some several thousand bees into an empty swarm cage, which is a shoebox size wooden or plastic box with screen size for ventilation. You then place the cage queen inside with them and then you feed them heavily in the box by brushing sugar syrup on the screen so they can like lick it off with their tiny little bee tongues. And if the worker bees are sufficiently well fed like this, within a few days, scout bees will spring into action. Thus, it appears that a forager with a full stomach for several days will transform herself into a scout. Now, Lindauer observed something similar in his May 1954 study that was mentioned earlier. When he set out his syrup feeder on May 17th, there was little natural forage available, and so the bees danced enthusiastically for the feeder location and would return to the hive time and time again loaded up on the rich sugar syrup. After May 22nd, however, the horse chestnut trees in the area were in full bloom, and the colony's comb was soon packed with honey. When foragers returned to the hive with full stomachs, whether it was nectar or syrup, they had increasing difficulty finding hive bees to pass their load to. With the comb laden with brood and food, the returning foragers are forced to rest there with bulging stomachs of nectar or syrup. To quote Seeley, this forced inactivity may stimulate a few foragers, those who are constitutionally inclined to explore, to turn to nest site scouting. Seeley notes that he finds it extremely suggestive that not long after Lindauer observed previously active foragers now sitting idly or bearding at the hive entrance, he noticed some of his marked foragers exploring his offered nest sites. And that's it for this chapter. So this one really kind of grabbed me. I was really enjoying the research for this. Um, And I think some of it is 
just, I love how you can just assume things, but a scientist always needs to know. So I had always just assumed, knowing what we know about worker bees, that obviously a forager would end up being a scout bee. Um, but I love that, you know, Seely and then his student has demonstrated that yes, foragers become scouts and that they've looked into it as to what might be causing this and of course I'm not surprised but I'm very interested that genes do play a large part in this. I also find it very charming that having a full stomach for so long is is what seems to be the impetus to make the switch to scouting and of course it makes perfect sense um I'm kind of imagining if it was your job to go out and do the grocery shop every day and at first you come home and you're loading your groceries to you know your roommate or your spouse and they're packing the fridge and there's still space in the fridge so you go out the next day and you bring stuff in And then eventually you're going to get to this point where there's just no more room for all the groceries. And so you're just standing around with bags of groceries with nowhere to put it. And you probably think to yourself, well, we need a second fridge or we need more cabinets. And in this case, being forced to like hang around with this big full tummy full of nectar is clearly saying to the bee after a period of time. So it's not just happening occasionally, it's happening consistently for a couple of days. Obviously, this is when the bees realize, oh, we don't have the space anymore. And that must mean that we are strong enough to look elsewhere. Because I'm not saying a bee understands fully what it means to separate from the hive and the resources that requires. But clearly it's like, well, we need a second fridge. We're going to get a second nest and we're going to move. So it's almost common sense when you read it, but somehow... If someone had asked me, well, what causes them to know when it's time? I never would have said, well, they hang around with full tummies. (laughs) It's just, it would not have occurred to me. So I really, really love this chapter and I'm excited to move on to chapter five. So in two weeks, I will have chapter five, which is called Agreement on Best Site. And we will go through all of that. And I should have some more news for you about what's going on here. Although sadly, not a lot of news about my hives because we are firmly in winter. So now it's the time of the podcast where I usually share some personal updates, but honestly, I really don't have much to add uh, this week. Um, Things are just chugging along as normal here for me. Um, I'm just getting through the winter at this point. Mainly what I do is just make myself promises like when it's warm again, I'm going to sit out in the sunshine and drink a gluten-free beer or I'm going to take all the puppies on one of the walks that we can't do right now because of the snow. Or I'm going to make sure I use my fire pit more this year when it's sort of chilly in the spring evenings so we can spend more time outside, just things like that to kind of get me through. And that's it really. Otherwise, things are pretty good. Like I said, just chugging along. I hope you're all doing well out there. Um, Those of you who are also experiencing winter, I know it's terrible and cold, but we're doing the best we can. I hope your bees are faring okay and that the spring isn't too far away for us all. And for those of you who maybe are listening from Australia, where everything is lovely and sunny, I hope it's not too hot right now because things being too hot can be just as challenging as it being too cold when it comes to bees, I think. 
So anyway, stay safe out there. Um, you know, make sure you wear your mask, wash your hands, you know, don't go out if you can avoid it. I hope that things are going well for you. And I really hope this is the year that a lot of things are going to be better for all of us. So just stay safe out there, my friends. And remember, as always, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye.